the future of our church, the future of our nation just walked out those doors. And we can be grateful for people like Mr. Webb and Steve Campbell as he helps out and Celinda and Little Lamb Preschool and their ministry to young children and Awana on Wednesday night because Jesus Christ is presented to these kids in ways in which they can understand and appreciate and lives are changed through it. And because of that, the course of our nation could very well change. So uh, we should be thankful uh, and rejoice for that kind of ministry that's happening here in our church. Our scripture reading today comes from the last book in the Bible, uh, the book that we are in the process of making our way through. This is the second Sunday in that book, but uh, Revelation chapter um, 5, uh, verses 13 and 14. This is what we read there. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we gather here today, as we do, uh, with an expectation. Not something that we deserve or can claim on our own, but because we belong to you through the blood of your Son, we gather here expecting to hear a word from you. We thank you for this wonderful treasure you've given us in the Bible. We thank you, Lord, that it is your word, your heart communicated to us. And in this word, we learn things about you, about ourselves, about the world that we live in, and things that we couldn't otherwise know. But you know, Lord, and you, in your grace and your wisdom, communicate these truths to us. And today, Father, as we once again turn to this last book, this glorious book that records the end of time as we know it in the beginning of your unending kingdom, we ask that you would give us understanding and that you would open our hearts and our minds to your truth. And, Father, the truth is that we can't contain you and your truth any more than a paper bag can contain fire. So we ask that you would strengthen us in our inner person and that we might know even more and even better your love for us. And we ask all that we do here today in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So uh, relationships are complicated things, um, and they come in all shapes and sizes. We have relationships with uh, family and friends. There are 
work in school associations. There's interactions that we have with people we meet on the street and even those who are driving on the highways with us. And even within each of those categories, how we interact with someone really depends on how they relate to us and how they are relative to us. We we treat, for instance, our parents one way and our brothers and sisters another while we interact with aunts and uncles differently still. And husbands and wives behave toward one another in their own unique way. We have friends who are close confidants and others we just kind of pal around with because we have similar interests. And those same kinds of things that we just said about those relationships could be said about all the other ones that we've mentioned. And though there is much in common to all relationships, each one requires different things for us from us. For example, uh, at work we should respect everyone while we obey our boss and encourage our co-workers and guide those uh, whom we manage. And yet, as varied and as complicated as all of that is, we somehow manage it. Some of what we do seems to come more naturally to us, while other behaviors we have had to learn. Not that we do it perfectly. We don't. We're always making mistakes. But usually, um, usually we know it or someone points it out to us and we can make the necessary corrections. See, we're all able to do all of this because God has built that capacity into us. He has created us to be relational beings where people, as that old song says, people who need other people. And sin has affected us deeply, but but that need still exists. And not only are we created to have a need of fellowship with other people, but but we also are created to have that same fellowship with God. Our sin separated from him, but Christ Jesus came. And when he died on that cross, he paid for all of our wrongdoings so we can come back to God, and he sought us out. And so now once we have put our faith in Christ, we, we can have a relationship with God. And that relationship, as we ought to expect, is different from all others, and it It has its own set of requirements. But we were created for it. In fact, we were created for that very thing, and it takes precedence over all the others. Our relationship with God is primary, and all other relationships are derivatives of that. And it's because God has made us for it that... uh, we have that ability once we're in Christ to have a real relationship with the living God. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. Uh, We're going to talk about that relationship with God and the blessing that hovers over such a relationship. And to do that, we're going to look once again, as I've already mentioned, to the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 1 again, uh, verses 4 through 8 this time. I know it's on the screen beside me, but uh, join me in your Bibles if you have them. And we'll see what this scripture has to tell us. So last week, we looked at the first three verses, which form an introduction to the book, while here we say that it was a letter that uh, was written and, and 
as the beginning of verse 4 makes clear to us. We read there, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, this is the typical start or form of a letter which would have been written back in those days, and it identifies the writer who's John and those two he's writing to, and that's the seven churches. And the first thing that John does after that formal um, uh, greeting there in that letter is to bless those that he's writing to. Now, this too is is similar to what was always done in letters of that day, but here it's not a mere formality. John really desired that the blessing be on those to whom he's writing, and indeed, so does God. Uh, and, And it's also this blessing here written in a way that makes it distinctively Christian in character. And and so he writes this, Grace and peace to you. So I know that when we come to these words, we tend to read right over them. Um, Typically, we don't even pause here. But this is the word of God, and everything in it is there for a reason, and it has value. And this is here because God really wants us to be blessed, uh, both as a church and individually. He wants us to experience his grace, that unmerited favor, or as it's sometimes annotated, Christ, or God's riches at Christ's expense. And he wants us to know that daily. And he wants us to have peace, um, real peace, which only he can give, not the world's kind of peace, which is a a mere absence of conflict, but fullness of life that even in conflict, our hearts are sure and are at rest. And far from skimming over this, we ought to long for it. We should realize that God wants that for us. And yet the truth is, is that it only comes to us in a relationship and specifically in a relationship with him. That's why I say the blessing is hovering. I mean, we've known it, we've experienced it, we've tasted it, but there's more that's there yet. It's hovering and it's waiting to come to us as our relationship with God grows. And so the blessing is from God. John tells us that. I mean, he writes those words and he knows the grace and the peace come from God. And and so after he says grace and peace, he, he begins to talk to us about God and 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 as he does so he can't help in this setting he just can't help but to talk about him as he is in the the terms of the trinity I know that word doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible, but we as believers know what it means. It's a shorthand way of referring to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And and John begins talking about God in those terms. I'm going to have more to say about that a little bit later, but first I I want to note two things uh, about this text that we're going to look at. First, I I just want to remark what follows, that this passage is beautiful and it's Deep and it's it's just full of distinctive Christian theology. And although we're not going to do it, uh, there's so much here that we really could spend a month of Sundays on it and not get to the end. But it really is worthy of our contemplation. And I want to encourage you again this week to take some time and read the book of the Revelation. Just read through it. Don't try to make it, figure out how anything fits. Or just simply take this short passage we're going to look at today and read it and think about it 
during the week. The second thing I, I want to note is kind of the unusual order that John will use when he writes about the Trinity here. Usually uh, when he, we come across the, uh, the Trinity, both in the Bible and in other writings, we read about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but not here. When, when we read about it here in this chapter, uh, we see that it comes in a different order. And it's even different than what we see in, uh, in chapter 4. But in the middle of verse 4, the beginning of verse 5, we read, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ. So here we read about the Father and then the Spirit and than the Son. Now, there's a reason for that, which I'm going to come back to in just a little bit, but I need to explain some of the things that are going on in the text that we've just read. So he who is and who was and who is to come is referring to God the Father. We could say here that he is described for us in terms of the eternal and self-existence that is who he is. He is eternal. He's self-existent. And even the word order here is a little different than what we usually uh, uh, come across. It's not chronological. Uh, In in chapter 4, these same words are used, but but chronologically, he who was and is and is to come. But but here it's not. It's, It's different. It starts out with him who is. And the reason it does that is it's a deliberate echo of the Old Testament name of God, the Tetragrammaton, which I've mentioned before. There was four Hebrew letters that represented the name of God, the great I am. And this Greek is the echo of that. Who is? He is God. Who is? And of course, because of who he is, he was God eternally in the past and he will always be, he is God who is to come. And so God is the Father who's eternal and self-existent, but God is also the Spirit who is described in terms of fullness and, and, and really all fullness to us. And John does that uh, symbolically. He describes the Spirit symbolically, which we're just going to have to get used to as we make our way through this book because it is absolutely full of symbols. When John introduces this symbolic representation of the Holy Spirit, we know he's talking about the Spirit because it's put in there, concluded between the Father and the Son. And he says, the seven spirits that are before the throne. A better translation of that would be the sevenfold spirit. You see, that number seven represents fullness or completeness, and, and it's God's spirit which is fullness to us or completeness to all of us. Which brings us next to the description of Jesus. And this unusual word order is because John wants to focus his thoughts on Jesus. But before we look at those thoughts again, before we look at them in detail, it'd be helpful to see something else that's going on in this text, something else about this passage. You see, this passage is what theologians refer to as an inclusio, a fancy word 
that just means there's a beginning, middle, and end that's all related. And we, we find those things everywhere we look in the Scriptures, but they don't come easy. You only discover them by careful reading. So when we write things in our days, we do the same kind of thing. We emphasize things, and we can do it using outlines or bullet points or even italics, but they didn't have that. This is what they used. And, and so a section of Scripture begins with something. It, it may be a particular word order, as in this case, or a theme, or a person. Almost anything can begin such a, a, a section of Scripture. And then there's a middle portion that's somehow related to that beginning. And then the other end closes a section in a way that recalls the first section. And again, it's also related to what's in the middle. It's kind of like bookends. There's the beginning and the middle and the close, and those bookends hold it together. But also, maybe we'd be better saying it displays what's in the middle. It draws emphasis to it. It highlights what's in the middle. And so this beginning of this inclusio, the description of God the Father um, is echoed in the middle of verse 8. Let me read that for you. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And there it is, that linguistic echo that closes this section of scripture who is and who was and who is to come now there's more here in this verse but we're not quite ready to look at what's there but what we are ready to do is to see something and now that we see this now that we understand what an inclusio is and why it's used, we can understand why John uses this unusual word order for the Trinity. It's because he wants to highlight Jesus' role in our relationship to God. He is the center of our relationship with God. He's not all there is, but it's through him that we come to the Father. And so Jesus is now added as a to one of those from whom the blessing flows. And now John turns his thought to Jesus, and he describes him for us from three perspectives. And because of time, we can only look at each of those perspectives briefly. But uh, the first thing that John does is uh, he describes Jesus for us, and, and he does it in terms of who he is now that he has become a man. And so the Son of God the Word of God, has always existed. There never has been a time when he was not. But over 2,000 years ago now, he became a man. A son was uh, given. A child was born, as Isaiah tells us. He was born of a virgin in a stable in Bethlehem when Herod the Great ruled in Palestine. And John describes Jesus now that he's become a man. And so in verse 5, he tells us that from the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son, the blessings flow, and Jesus is the one who was faithful unto death. And so we read, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. You see, Jesus was a faithful witness to the truth. And his faithfulness, his strong witness brought hatred to him from the world and from his enemies, and ultimately it led to his crucifixion. 
And it really is often that way for those who stand for the truth. You know, that word witness there is the word maturia, uh, from which our word martyr comes. Standing for the truth in this evil world brings its wrath upon you. And sometimes when it can do it, when it can get away with it, it kills you. And that's what happened to Jesus. As the faithful witness, Jesus was killed. He was faithful unto death. He was faithful to the Father, and he was faithful to us. But he is also now alive and alive forever. That's what the next phrase tells us. He was the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. As a man, he could die, but because he didn't deserve to die, he he laid down his life for us. Death couldn't hold him. He was resurrected never to die again. He is the firstborn from the dead the dead, but he's not the last. He's the only one so far who has ever been resurrected. You know, all those other stories in the Old Testament and New Testament, they were not resurrections. They were merely reanimations. Those people were brought back to this kind of life, and they all died again. But Jesus was resurrected, and as the first person who would be raised from the dead, he will never die again, and he will lead his people into new life. You know, all people die, but Christ and those who come to him die only once. And those who are on the outside die the second death, which is eternal separation from God and all that is good. But we who know Christ will live forever. So he's Also, as the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead, he is exalted over all humanity. Again, in verse 5, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the faithful witness who laid down his life, but he was raised, and he was raised above every kind of thing, every person, every being, so that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so John begins telling us about the eternal Son of God once he became a man. And then he goes on and he tells us more about him. He describes him in terms of what he did. And what he did results in worship. So again, in the middle of verse 5, the first full sentence we read this. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You know, those two things go together. Because of his love, he took our sins away. And yet, I want you to notice what it says. He loves us. The tense of the verb. He loves us now. He loved us when he laid down his life for us. And he will love us when he raises us from the dead. But the truth is he loves us now and he always has. The truth is he loved us before we ever gave him a thought. He loved us before we were born. He loves us before the world was made. He loves us, you and me. He loves us. And he took away our sins The only way he could do that was to die in our place, taking our punishment upon himself. It's only by the blood that we can know forgiveness. 
Now, I know I, I say this often, but I, it needs to be said often. It's like that old hymn, What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Were God to grant you the ability to travel to every corner of this universe, if he would allow you to search into every heart and mind and look behind every leaf and rock, if he were to allow you to delve to the deepest parts of every world and every star and every moon that there is, you could find nothing in all of the universe that can take away your sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He loves us, and so he died to set us free from our sins, and he made us his own people. That's what it tells us in verse 6. And he has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. You see, we who know him are God's people. We're a kingdom, a kingdom not defined by borders, but by loving obedience to our king. A kingdom not limited by race or nationality or gender or any kind of ethnicity, but a kingdom that covers our globe this day and is found in every country. Not a kingdom that will one day grow weak and disintegrate into nothingness as all other kingdoms have, but an everlasting kingdom, the kingdom of God. And as his people, we're also his priests. We hold that privileged position where we represent man to God and God to man. We have the privilege to tell other people about God and his love for them. We have the privilege to pray for others. And our prayers are not mere exercises, but they're powerful to make a difference in eternity. And through both of those things, both of those things are are duty-bound. Yet, if only we had the eyes to see it, we know that favored position that we're in because of our Savior, and it overshadows any sense of duty, and it's replaced merely with the sense of awe and all that comes from being in the presence of the living God for the sake of other people. And that's why John exclaims what he does next. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Knowing who Jesus is, both as God and man, and knowing what he's done for us because he loves us, causes us to worship the living God. And when we think about that, it causes us, doesn't it? It causes us to long for the return of the king. And so John describes Jesus in terms of his second coming. That's what he does next. Verse 7, look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. John tells us, Jesus will come with the clouds, recalling the words of the angels who stood by the disciples as Jesus was taken up into heaven. When they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. It recalls for us 
the prophecy of Daniel in the Old Testament. In my vision at night, Daniel wrote, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed and when jesus comes back it will not be in obscurity as when he was born it will be with a complete revealing and every eye will see him even those who are against him that's what it means by those who pierced him in fact all people will see him and mourn and the commentators differ on what that mourning is here what the sorrow is it's being referred to Some think it it was a horror of the unsaved at their own lost condition. Some think it's the sorrow of the saved over those who are lost. Others think it's even our own sadness at what sin has caused in the death of Jesus and the loss of so many. Or maybe it's all three, as I think it is. That thought moved John to say what he does at the end of verse 7. So shall it be. Amen. You see, when Jesus returns, not only will he be revealed in all of his glory and splendor, all other people will be unmasked or made known. So shall it be. Amen. Now, if we take what we've looked at here and we put it all together we see that the blessing flows from the father who is eternal and self-existent and the spirit who is all fullness to us and the son who is described in terms of his humanity his actions and his second comings who is central to our relationship with the living god And that final verse of inclusion there, the last one in the Ecclusio, verse 8, closes with this declaration by God that he is one God who declares himself, his uniqueness, eternal nature, and power. Read it again. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty You know, that statement is a way of saying, I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. I'm the all in all. It's another way of distinguishing God from all and any and all other creatures or beings, no matter how great they might be. None even comes close to the living God. Here, the statement applies, obviously, to God. The Father is attributed to the Lord God, the Old Testament title for him. Jehovah's Witnesses and others say, yeah, God the Father only is the Alpha and Omega, while Jesus is simply the first and the last, as it says when we get there in chapter 1 and verse 17. But in chapter 2 and verse 13, Jesus tells us that he is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus makes the same claim as the Father himself makes, and he even emphasizes it so no one will miss the point. 
The blessing that flows to us doesn't come to us in three streams. It comes to us in one stream from the Father, who is eternal and self-existent, and the Spirit, who is all fullness to us, and the Son, who became a man and whose act of love makes us his people and who will come again in power and glory, who is a central part of our relationship with the living God and who is indeed God in the flesh. I have to tell you something, my friends. This is not mere theology. This is the God with whom we have a relationship. And to have a relationship with him means to know him in this way. It may be complicated, but it is what it is. You know, there are things about my wife that I just don't understand. And, and, and if, if I get things right in talking with other men, those same kinds of things about their wives, they don't understand either. But we learn to accept them, make allowances for them, even though we don't understand it. And then in talking with women, I find that the same thing's true on their side. There are things about men they just don't get. But we accept it. We learn and we respond to it. And again, as the wisdom of our age puts it, it is what it is. And when we learn to think in terms of the Trinity, and we don't do it all the time. We can't do it all the time. We don't have to do it all the time. I understand that. But when we learn to think in terms of the Trinity, there's a blossoming of our thoughts and our hearts and our inner beings begin to expand and grow because that's who God is. So for a long time, I would pray, and, and I'd say it's in my prayer, I, I would acknowledge that God the Father sent his Son because he could do the work, and he was willing to do the work. And as I thought about it, I began to realize that, that God the Father loves us, and he loves the Son. And he knows the Son loves us, and he was willing to come and die for us. And then I realized that the the Son loves us, and he loves the Father, and he knew the Father wanted to save us, and he was willing to come and suffer whatever he had to, to save us. And that the Holy Spirit loves the Father and the Son, and he loves us, and he is willing to come and live within us even though we grieve him and sometimes even quench him because he loves us and he loves the Father and the Son and he wants the salvation to grow, to be all that it's supposed to be, to be fullness and life. I think thinking about the Trinity protects us from making idols of God in our minds because when we think about the Trinity, we come across something that we don't meet anywhere else. I have to tell you, I know it's hard. 
but it's really only hard intellectually. <laughs> you know, children accept it without a blink. And, and, and the truth is, is that, that we accept it easily in our hearts and our souls and our inner being. It, it takes hold of us before it ever informs our intellect. We really can say something about this truth. Is accepted in our hearts readily, explained with difficulty, but it's lived by choice. This God, from whom the blessing flows, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is who he is. And the blessing hovers, waiting for us to embrace the fullness of our God and experience the fullness of his blessing. And if you want to have something to go into thanksgiving with, that's it. A picture, an image, a statement, scripture that describes who our God is. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you that um, when we come to you, we I can come to you with the faith of little children who, um, who accept this truth without uh, any hesitation. And they may not be able to explain it, Lord, but they know it in their heart, in their soul. Help us to do the same, to become like little children that we might inherit the kingdom. Help us to just embrace the truth of your word. And Lord, all of those ways in which we explain it, and all of the theologians' words, they're a help. But we really know it beyond our understanding. And what a great and marvelous God you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.